Welcome to the Good Book Club podcast, where we make all of our book club meetings and bonus events available for listeners to enjoy. Today, our podcast will feature our The Good Book Club discussion of Secret Combinations, Evidence of Early Mormon Counterfeiting, 1800 to 1847 by Kathleen Kimball Melanokas. Our discussion focuses on the charges of counterfeiting in the early Mormon church that seem to be pervasive and follow the leaders of the church wherever they go. Kathleen follows several different threads and develops many different ideas to delve into this world of Mormonism and counterfeiting. We hope you find this discussion as fascinating as we did. This book club meeting was originally held on August 13, 2022. Welcome, everybody, to the Good Book Club. This is our August edition. We always start out every one of our meetings by reading our mission statement, and we're going to have Melinda read that today. All right. The Good Book Club was created to bring together nuanced Mormons, post-Mormons, and others with shared interest in Mormonism. We are introspective, critical thinkers seeking to learn, connect, and build relationships through the catalyst of literature. We welcome all who are searching for a safe space to share authentic thoughts, feelings, and ideas through open dialogue and shared experiences relative to Mormon culture. As we deconstruct previous beliefs, we encourage all to find happiness in the process of discovering new religious ideologies, spirituality, and life philosophies. Oh, thank you, Melinda. You'll know it's getting weird if I start making all of us repeat that. It'll never happen. (laughs) Our first announcement, and I want to say that I'm going to throw all the announcements in the chat because it seems like there are so many. We're just going to make sure they're there in case you want to copy them. Um, Believe it or not, this month is our two-year birthday for the Good Book Club. On the 23rd of August, 2020 was our first meeting, and I just want to say how happy and proud I am, and I love it that I can look around and see that a lot of our original members are still here and still with us, so that makes me really happy. So happy birthday, the Good Book Club. Let's keep on going. So on last week, we had a lazy learner on the book of Abraham with Elder Igloo. It was an amazing discussion. We want to thank Elder Igloo. He did an incredible job. And if anybody would like the link to that, uh, please just get a hold of me and I will share it with you. It's also shared on our Facebook page under our um, The Good Book Club library. But it was an amazing presentation. So please take a look if you weren't able to attend. And speaking of Lazy Learner, our next one coming up is going to be September 27th. Just kind of put that on your calendar in the back of your mind. And we're going to be talking with Liz Phillips, who is the granddaughter of Rulon Allred, who is the prophet of the Apostolic United Brethren. And he was actually murdered by the LeBarons in a very complex uh, polygamist There's a lot of stuff going on. Anyway, this is going to be absolutely amazing. So we'll give you more information about that, but put that on your calendars, the 27th of October, which, sorry, September, which is a Tuesday at 7 p.m. Our next actual book club book uh, coming up in September is going to be Braiding Sweetgrass. And we're going to talk a little bit about that at the end of the meeting. Lynette is our discussion leader, and she's going to be giving us a little bit of an intro to this really good book. So look forward to that. That'll be September 11th. 
And there's going to be a date change in October. Our book for October is Early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview. And we are changing the date for many reasons I'll get into later, but it'll also be closer to Halloween. So I think this is going to be a really fun presentation. So this is going to be Sunday, October 23rd at 11. So not the second Sunday. It'll be, is that the fourth Sunday? Anyway, it'll be toward the end of October. So just kind of keep that on your calendar too in the back of your mind. And now to the main event here. Today we are going to be talking about secret combinations. And we have our amazing author, Kathleen Kimball Milanakis, on with us. I have my little stack of uh, bogus Nabu bogus with me. So I'm really excited. Landon is our discussion leader today, and we are just going to let him take it away. And we'll have our Q&A and discussion with Kathleen. Yep. All right. Thank you. Uh, we appreciate Kathleen joining us. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to open. She's got about forty five minutes that she uh, can spend with us. So uh, we're going to start out with some uh, question and answers, and then from there we'll move on to our book discussion once she leaves. So uh, we appreciate uh, Kathleen joining us. Uh, I'll go ahead and read her bio. Uh, uh, Kathleen uh, Kimball Melanakis is the direct descendant of early Mormon apostle Heber C. Kimball and his first wife Violet. She graduated from Brigham Young University in nursing and has worked at Stanford Medical Center and various other settings. She authored Saunders Pocket Reference for Nurses in 1990 and the Music Lovers Quotation Book, 1990 and 1997. She achieved a master's degree in liberal arts and philosophy from Stan Stanford University in 1996. Kathleen and her husband, Brian Melanakis, an international business executive, have lived in eight states and one foreign country. A student of history and religion, and religions for many years, she began seriously researching Mormon history in 2006, doing primary and secondary research across North America. She and Brian and their three daughters and families live in the San Diego area. So welcome, Kathleen. I appreciate you joining us. <laughs> I'm really happy to be here. This is really wonderful. Great. Uh, I, I want to start out by asking, um, uh, you left the church very, very uh, at a very young age, I guess. You just barely had been married, I think, for a year or so, you said, when you when you left the church or when you uh, decided. Yeah, to I've been out for a long time. For a long time. Uh, so what? I, your, your book is very in-depth in into Mormon history and more all the different things that, that happened along, um, you know, with the Mormonism and the start of the church, uh, early church. So what what got you after leaving the church? What got you interested or got brought you back to that, to the point that you studied enough to write a book? And then specifically, what got you into the counterfeiting side of things? That's a, a very unusual side <laughs> to yeah. go to. Well, as you might imagine, it's a quite a kind of a long story, um, my whole journey. <clears throat> and one, one thing I want to say before we even start is I really commend you all for your, your method of, of doing study. You know, you, you leave your upbringing or your lifestyle, your, your belief system that you've had that you've based your life on for so long. And then how do you find out what to go to? What is true? What, what do you base your life on now? And, and, and you, like uh, Rebecca said, that you're reading um, religious history, your Mormon history, Bible history, humanities, science, history, philosophy, religion. 
this is one of the very best methods that you that you that we have to try to determine what we can rely on what can be based you know how do we base our lives now what do we base it on so yes study i i've always been someone who loved words loved history loved philosophy well you know from my early youth i like i i just i wanted to know what was wise what what was good to do what was not good to do so that's what i really wanted to know what if mormonism was true or not because that's what they said from the pulpit you will know from the burning of your bosom and, and it, you know it will it will manifest in your life the good works you'll be rewarded da, da. so i believe that and i really wanted to know but from age 11 to age 20 i asked for what they said i would get burning of the bosom this wonderful feeling you know didn't ever get it and so that's why well and then different contradictions would come up in my mind and and one one of the other things that you people do i that i commend you for is studying psychology yeah there are principles of mental health that are good for you and there are those that just lead to mental confusion and a lack of mental health. So having contradictions in your mind is one thing that does not lead to mental health. <laughs> so uh, I have a long journey. I mean, I'm almost, I'm 68 years old by now. And, but I, I early on wanted to know what was wise, what was good, what was good to do, what was true. Well, especially because I experienced a lot of, you know, things that were painful because they weren't true and that, but so I've always studied anyway, that was the question. And I, I wanted to know history, religion, philosophy, science. Um, I was, I was a pretty good student, but, but I always was thought I was taught to think for myself and my parents would discuss things even though my mom was a pretty devout mormon but she still was a she she was a thinker she read literature she read stories she knew shakespeare she um she was a she she had a degree you know she graduated from college and even though she was a mom of five kids she was a pretty good thinker so i had this long journey from when I left the church in my early 20s because of contradictions, because of a lack of getting the feeling, and because of my husband, we both decided to explore other things, other, well, you know, so we had this period from age 20 to age 40, really seeking things out and studying, you know, we, I, I went to I went back to college. I went back to eight different universities because we moved. But I had these questions in my mind, and I wanted to know what literature said. I wanted to know what all these great thinkers in the past had thought about these great questions, the best way to live, and what the meaning of life is. So I, I studied for a long period, and and then I I. You know, in my 40s, 
after looking at all these different things, I, I was led by the evidence to look, take a second look at the Bible. Like, well, this is what our, so much of our civilization is built on. I want to know what's actually in it. And so I started looking at that. And then, then I was, I was amazed by what I found out and how this, both the Mormons and the secularists told me a wrong story about what the Bible says. People can tell you what's in it, but you need to know what it is yourself. And that's one of the rules of critical thinking, right? Examine it yourself. So I actually used a scientific method and the, the, the other rules of logic that I'd learned from philosophy and from science to evaluate truth claims of a lot of different systems, including Christianity. And I started becoming more convinced of the truth of the actual Bible itself, how it stood the test of time in there. And I always had believed in Christian ethics. So where, so, you know, love your neighbor, be good to those you, uh, around you, golden rule. I never gave those up. Those always seemed like the best way to live, you know, and, and so, okay, let's see where those actually come from. And let's clear away the cobwebs of what people have said about the Bible. And let's look at it with a new eye, with new eyes and with a new you know, perspective now that I'm in my 40s and I've studied all these other things. So when I became a Christian, then I wanted to know, okay, well, what was, I don't know why. I, I'm not exactly sure, except that my family had suffered a lot from polygamy and from the repercussions of my father coming out of, of a polygamy group. And so, and my mother was still suffering from some of the untruths of it and some of the damages that lies can do. And my mother still has to this day, she's 93. She still has the saying, there's nothing more crazy making than being lied to. And both her father and her uh, husband had lied to her because if you don't even believe it's wrong to lie, you know, anyway, there's a whole test of truth that I have to, to, to evaluate truth claims, to evaluate if people are trustworthy. You can develop tests that are pretty practical to see if somebody's trustworthy and see if belief, belief systems are trustworthy. So anyway, then I became a Christian and I wanted to know, well, what was the real story of polygamy? And, and how, did he, how did Joseph ever come up with the idea that that was from God, because it really isn't. I mean, when you study it, and yes, it occurred in the Bible, but it was never commanded. It was never condoned. Things always went wrong with it. There was all these terrible repercussions whenever, when any, anybody even ever practiced it, including David, including Solomon, including, you know, there were always bad consequences from it. And the Lord even warned them against it. 
and commanded against it. So I wanted to know the truth about that because I personally and my family had personally suffered from it. So I was curious and I started looking in about polygamy and then I started reading about, about um, you know, the church history. I mean, I have so much church history as a part of my library already. I had it and I have an heirloom copy of the Journal of Distor Courses that I inherited from my father's side of the family. And, and so I just started reading and I was very curious. I, and I kept running into these references to counterfeiting. I said, and it was always a footnote or it was a side story. And I said, why is this occurring? Polygamy and counterfeiting seem to go together. They seem to be one of these recurring themes throughout Mormon history. When you really look at the primary documents, you start looking at, not at what has been written about the Mormon history, you know, about the church history, the history of the church by Joseph Smith. When you start actually looking at it itself, instead of what somebody else said about it, then it's a whole different story. And that's the best way to do history is look at the primary documents that people wrote at the time, not what somebody else said they said. Same with, you know, that same with, that was the lesson I learned about the Bible. Like, don't, don't read what somebody else says it says, read it at its actual self. So yeah, I started looking at the primary documents from the 19th century, um, newspapers, journals, um, the history of the church itself, what people said, these, the, the ex-Mormons that left, the exposés that they wrote, you know, and I, I kept running into counterfeiting. And then I studied counterfeiting culture. There were, you know, in the 19th century, nation of counterfeiters, what did counterfeiters do in the early 1900s? Other counterfeiters besides Mormon counterfeiters. Like they had these certain things that they did in common with other counterfeiters. They had these large oath bound networks. They took secret oaths not to ever reveal uh, their secrets to the law enforcement. They, they, you know, there were certain things that they did. So then I studied that and I said, oh, wow. Mormon counterfeiting fits in exactly, or not exactly, but it, it has so many parallels with what other counterfeiters did too. And that's how, so, so that I started gathering it. I started looking at different libraries all around the country. And then it, then it started to form a story. I said, wow, I'm going to, I'm going to have to gather this all up, be selective and, and tell the story of the counterfeiting well, we're, we're we're glad you did because we, we as a group, as we've read the Mormon, as we've read Mormon history, we kept running into counterfeiting, and we kept going, "What is it? Why is everyone accusing each other of being counterfeiters all the time?" We said, "We got to figure this out," and so we found your book as we looked to to try to figure out why why are there all these references to counterfeiting. So we've got that's several. What I, that's what I did too. I kept. Why are they accusing each other of counterfeiting? That's what I wanted to know. So yeah. yeah. So it's glad, we're glad someone wrote a book about it because that, that was the question we went to. We've got several people that are starting to ask some questions. And if you have a question, just raise your hand. Um, Spencer, it looks like you have a question. Uh, 
he, he posted it in the chat, so I'll go ahead and ask it for him. He said, is there a true differentiation to be made between counterfeiting and establishing a group's own currency, at least in the 1800s? Today, counterfeiting seems to allude to faking an already established currency. In the 1800s, it seems these groups were often creating their own currency, not necessarily creating duplicates of another. And I think that probably references the Kirtland Saving Society type of thing that we saw going on, so. Right. Um, well, one thing I learned from Socrates, and there's rules of logic that help to know how to communicate and be clear. And one of them is define your terms. So when you say currency and when you say counterfeiting, what do you actually mean? And there is a definition of what counterfeiting is according to Glazier. And he said, counterfeit is, is any illegal money. In other words, that there's a law against it. You know, usually governments want to control the currency because whenever you have outside people creating money and creating their own system, it it can wreak havoc on the on the economy. I mean, they've had that since the Romans, at least, where the Romans were in charge of the currency, um, stamping Caesar's head, picture on it, and if you, you know, they, it, it, it can, so, so in early America, the currency was a big issue. They debated it. Benjamin Franklin wrote pamphlets on it. Uh, they used different means of exchange. They used from the span, they used Spanish doubloons. They used the paper uh, banknotes that separate different banks came up with. And it was not established very well, especially right after the revolution. Like, what are we gonna do about a currency? And there were different banks. There were government banks and there were independent banks. And, and it was all based on specie. And what is specie? Gold or silver that backs it up, that the bank was supposed to keep on hand. So if you had a bank note from a bank, you were supposed to be able to cash in that bank note at any time for gold or silver. Well, that's where the Kirtland Bank Society, you know, Safety Society, it was, it, what they did was highly illegal. I mean, they'd have, they had no charter for the bank. They did not have a permission from the state to print their own currency and just, uh, you know, use it to, to use it for a trip for trade they did have well I, I must say that uh, Andrew Jackson was fighting the central bank at that time well you've read some of this I mean the, 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 the he wanted to free up the banks so that there were individual banks that you had a contract with and if they broke their contract, yes, the state would back up your contract with them. If they didn't have specie that, or they ripped you off, they gave you a bank note and they didn't have the gold to back it up, okay, then. But he wanted to have a decentralized system of banking. And Nicholas Biddle wanted to have the central bank for the United States. So that was the big battle that was going on right in 1837. Um, with the Kirtland Safety Society, but 
Joseph and Hiram Smith decided to take advantage of that, <laughs> that it, you know, that it was a little bit, but there were, there were still, there were certain banks that had good reputations. There were certain uh, banks on, that, that were run by the state, like the state of Missouri had a really good bank. The state of Ohio was a little looser, but there was, there was different banks that you could rely on. And there were different wildcat banks, they called them, that you did not rely on. And the, so that, so yes, um, the during the Kirtland Safety Society, there were it was in the, a little bit in the state of transition, but there were good reliable banks that you could rely on, and some of them did fail in the Panic of eighteen thirty seven. Uh, but you wanted to make sure that you did have a good bank. And, 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 and the Kirtland Safety Society was not one of them. <laughs> but there were different currencies, you know. Can I, can I ask you this um, regarding the Kirtland Safety Society? Um, can you name any other religion of the time? We, we went to the, to the Church History Museum uh, to, to look for some of the, you know, you'd said the dyes were there. We talked about that a little bit earlier. Uh, and the yeah, thing that they- yeah, they're not there now. Yeah, the, one of the things they said is that uh, they said there were periods uh, of time when the church needed to take control of their own financial well-being, and so started stuff like the Kirtland Safety Society, and then in Nauvoo they did some other ones. Oh. Um, can you name any other religion in the United States that printed their own currency and started their own banks? Was that a was that a common thing to happen? And also, um, does it seem possible that a startup church that's only six years old, all of a sudden was sophisticated enough to start a bank and start printing its own money without some sort of a background in, in, in maybe the counterfeiting? That, that to me was one of the things that stuck out is how did they, six years in a new church, all of a sudden start a bank and start printing money and start, start doing all of that? It seemed, it seemed very early in a church, uh, and, and I didn't know if that was something that was standard that other churches did or is is this really the only church that that you know of that that started its own bank and in its own financial type of institution? Well, I I didn't really look into other the question of whether other churches did that, but I'd be very surprised if they did. Um, most churches depended on donations. Their main charter was preaching the gospel and. You know, yes, they had to raise money to build a church, but that they didn't go into all these other businesses like the Mormons did. They they did not. I mean, and 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 one thing about the Mormons was that I hope I showed in my book that they had been involved in counterfeiting at least since Joseph Smith Senior, if not even before that. Asel Smith. So he, he, you know, Joseph Smith Sr. had been arrested twice in Vermont. He, he, hang, he hung around with these different counterfeiters. He had this counterfeiting network that he continued to associate with after they moved to New York, after they moved to Ohio. Um, and so they they are they already knew about the big New York counterfeiting center that was, uh, you know, the place where counterfeiters would meet with each other and exchange good money for bad or printed notes. There were these different counterfeiting centers, and you know it was 
it was crazy because my my great great grandfather was Heber C. Kimball, you know, the very first one. So I go to look where he's buried. He's buried in Sheldon, Vermont, which is right on the border, across the border from one of the big counterfeiting centers in Canada. <laughs> so you know he, he, and there were there was a town named Bakersfield, Vermont, where there were a lot of counterfeiters at that time. You know, early on, I mean, these centers would have to move around. They could only stay in a place at at a certain time because then law then, then the law enforcement would come and you know get on to them of course a, the, a lot of times the law enforcement just looked the other way because they were in on it too yeah you, uh, you mentioned but, but i don't know of any other church that got into they certainly i don't think i don't know of any but i i could look into that even more but i had never heard of any other church that got in that got well there were radical sects okay they're there's a different question. The radical sects were always on the fringe. And I, I have that in chapter one of my book. There were, there were these people that called themselves prophets. They, they did not base their teachings on the Bible. They, they would pick and choose something from the Bible. And then they'd say that I'm a prophet and, and I am going to tell you what to do. I'm going to tell, I'm going to have a following. I'm going to lead you out into the frontier and, and you, you must give obedience to me. Uh, but 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 I am getting revelations from God, and I'm going to, you know, uh, establish this society. Those groups were often connected with counterfeiting. That okay. so the radical groups were, but not churches per se, not mainstream churches, or you know what we right. Not that I know of. I mean, Even today, the church is a, a much a financial institution with and had its own banks. Well, I think they got rid of ZC or uh, Zion's, but uh, you know they even to the modern day they still have that. It looks like Bruce has a question. Bruce, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, I just had a quick question. So, like Joseph Smith Senior's involvement. Was his involvement most likely, you know, passing the counterfeit currency and not as like running a press? When I think of counterfeiting, I think, okay, they have a press, they have the plates, and they're they're in the manufacture. But the the large groups that you talk about would have to have a lot of different people doing different things. Right. Do you think that the the Smith family were instead of printing press operators more in the other sides of distributing and passing off counterfeits? Or did you come across any specifics? Well, the thing about when I studied the counterfeiting culture is that these people that tended to be involved in them were involved in different ways of swindling people. They, they weren't just counterfeiters. They were, and and see, you know seeing with a seer stone, and getting finding people's lost or stolen property by seeing through the magic stone, that was a way very common that counterfeiters got started. They would do that for a while. They'd learn how to read people. They'd learn how to uh, get people to trust them, and then and then collect a fee for their supernatural powers. Stephen Burroughs started out doing that for quite a while. Um, some other counterfeiters that I 
put in the in the book, uh, but it was a common trick, and there, that's why there was a law against it, because people would want to find their lost or stolen property. But of course, the person doing that had already stolen the property and hid it, and then charged a fee for quote finding it with the seer stone, you know. Uh, so, but they but counterfeiting money wasn't the only way that they would swindle people. They'd learn all these tricks of how to live without working, <laughs> you know, really. I mean, and they that's why they called them disorderly persons. They, they wouldn't get a farm and, and work the farm. They wanted to travel around. They, they would, oh, uh, quack, quackery, you know, sell, doc, doing doctor, having these healing potions that they would sell. That was another big way of swindling people. Um, but, but then there were these big, large counterfeiting networks and they got larger and more sophisticated as time went on. Now, when, 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 when Joseph Smith, I mean, when his father, Smith Sr., he was involved with the Ransford Rogers group um, and another uh let's see i can't remember his name now but he was he was a big counterfeiter during the revolutionary war apparently i mean you have to kind of piece it together but he was there in this in the town where their headquarters was and then you know he, well and and joseph smith senior was part of the wood scrape group and that was a that was a group that used quote prophecy to make predictions of what you know what people were supposed to do and they and they uh use these other tricks of of swindling people so people said that he was definitely part of that group there were eyewitnesses that said that and and one of the main people in that wood scrape group was a a, a well-known counterfeiter that hid in the woods so nobody knew that he was there but that's so if you study the the wood scrape group that was a front for counterfeiters according to a lot of people what they believed and it's and it's hidden i mean they that's the thing about counterfeiters swindlers thieves they always have a front group they always make it look like it's so it's legit so then you have to dig deeper and hear and find out below the surface what people suspected of them, what they accused them of. Was there any proof of that? Did they go to jail? Did they have people in their group that that were also, you know, so it, it's records? possible that the church was a front group that they came up with. You mean the LDS church? Yeah, yeah, the original the Church of Christ when they first established it. Well, that's what my thesis is. I mean, they were involved in swindling with seeing people, you know, seeing people's lost and stolen property with the seer stone. I mean, Joseph Smith did that for seven years for in Palmyra before he got caught in 1826, he got arrested. And then he had to start doing something else because he couldn't go to Susquehanna County um, anymore. I mean, without, he couldn't show his face there. And he, his reputation for being arrested was out there, you know, he's, he's, 
So he, they, 1826 was when he got arrested. When did he start writing the Book of Mormon? 1827, yeah. And that was right when the anti-Masonic movement started getting going. And there were other people that wanted to start, an, uh, you know, they were coming down on the Masons and there were a lot of Masons coming out of there. And so it's my thesis that Joseph Smith wanted to escape the repercussions of him getting arrested for his swindling because people were onto him now. So he had to come up with a new trick. And that's why he, he, he referred back to what his parents had uh, learned in Vermont about this idea of a, of a uh, history of the Native Americans written on plates, you know, golden. So they came up with this whole new version of what they had already been exposed to in Vermont, this idea for a, you know, a history of the, of the Native Americans. And, but they said that it was buried on golden plates in the ground and they came up with the whole thing to do with that. But they'd already honed all their skills of deceiving people and tricking people, but it was way harder to uh, prove religious fraud rather than this swindling with the seer stone, the occultic fraud. So now he had the Book of Mormon when he started that, he could be a preacher and, you know, the Book of Mormon pretty much sounds like the Bible. So it wasn't so much different than what other preachers were doing, except he had a whole another twist on it. Meanwhile, they're going, they're continuing with their, uh, you know, their other tricks, <laughs> you know, their tri ways of getting money from people. That, that's <laughs> interesting because the church today is hiding behind that religious thing, you know, on so many of the things we see today, we see that religion really does allow you to cover a lot of things. Um, ah. Looks like JJ has a question. And then I think Melinda has one. Um, JJ, you wanted to ask yours? Uh, yeah, sure. Thanks. And uh, thanks for coming out. The one question I had is why use money digging as a cover for counterfeiting? They're both illegal, and it seems like it would attract more attention if you're doing that, especially the money digging part. You're going to make a lot of enemies that way. Um, that part doesn't make sense to me. I can understand if they're scammers and they're doing all kinds of little things, and, you know, um, like criminals typ typically will do various types of crimes instead of one thing. Yeah. Um, well, did you read the story of Ransford Rogers in there? Because that was one of his main role models. He, Ransford Rogers was this charismatic person who went to this town, Exeter, Massachusetts. He, that wasn't the only town, but we have the, the clearest description of what he did in Exeter, Massachusetts, because someone wrote it up in a pamphlet, an anonymous writer, he he described exactly what he did. He came into town as the school teacher, and he, so he he had a lot of knowledge, right? If he's able to teach school, and he he passed himself off as someone who was very respectable and knowledgeable, and he also knew about buried treasure. And he, he, so he, he got himself in the confidence of these local farmers 
in a small town in Exeter, Massachusetts. And remember, towns were much more isolated from each other. And, you know, then we, I mean, we have the internet now. We know what's going on all over the world. Well, they knew what was going on in the next town and maybe from the newspaper, you know, in their, in their region or local area, but, and, and through word of mouth, but they didn't have telephones. They didn't even have, you know, any of the ways of communication. So he could go to a town and get in with the elders of the, or the, the, the farmers of the town, which some of them were really well-to-do, gain confidence. And he'd, he'd, uh, he'd tell them that he knew how to find out where the buried treasure was on their land. And, you know, it describes how they slowly bought into it. And he got them to mortgage their farms even because they were going to be so rich from the buried treasure that it was worth it. And so, yeah, it, it took place over months, over a year, of, of almost a year before they finally, and he do these rituals and he do these um, seances late at night when people were drinking. So, but, but Joseph Smith, and he learned it, I guess, from Ransford Rogers, he would paint this amazing picture in people's minds. Oh, how, look, you're going to be so rich that, you, you know, that he, he'd be able to paint this picture of, of how wealthy and wonderful it was going to be. And, and they would just, he'd get him to focus on that and, and put their confidence in him. So it's hard for us to imagine um, believing so much in, you know, that there's actual buried treasure and that you can contact the ghosts that are going to tell you where it is. But that was kind of, that was the folklore back then that you could conjure the ghosts and get them to tell you where it was. But, you know, I, think, I think what JJ was asking though, is how, why, if you're a counterfeiter, would you bring that attention to yourself of swindling someone? Why not just counterfeit and keep it below the rate, stay below the radar? Well, I think that, I think that, that counterfeiters they, they went in stages, like they started out doing this seer stone swindling and they buried treasure, the money digging, they got better at their craft. And then they went, went into counterfeiting, you know, more after they graduated that. And, 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 and as I studied criminals, these, it was interesting because, you know, how we have a career where you start out, you you have an entry-level job, you, you maybe start out being a store clerk and you, you know, you move up to maybe the next level and you, and then you get promoted and you, you know, that's just how they were. They started out with these small little jobs and they would move up to the next level of, of crime. And then they, you know, they'd graduate. And that's why they, they'd succeed at bigger and bigger crimes. And that's why Joseph Smith, thought when he was the head of Nauvoo and he had this huge town following him and this inner circle network of oath-bound men that 
carry it, carried out all his orders. He thought he was invincible. He'd escaped the law all these times up till then. He's going to escape it again. And that's what happens with criminals, I noticed also. They get so overconfident that they've succeeded in getting away with these things for all this time. And then they get to be a really big criminal. And so it, it was a career step. <laughs> it's basically the act. Melinda, you had a question. Do you want to ask your question? Yeah, um, actually I have a couple, but I know we're getting short on time. So I'll probably just ask the one that was most pressing on my mind. Um, you introduced a couple of ideas that I had never thought of before or heard before. Um, and so one of them in particular was the Gold Bible Company. Right. After learning about that, I, I tried finding some additional information, you know, on Google, because that's where we all go. Um, and I couldn't find a whole lot. So I didn't know if you personally had found some more information. I know um, in, in the book, you had referenced the letters that were addressed um, to, to the Gold Bible Company. So I just would be very interested in anything you could share about the Gold Bible Company. Yeah, that, that was a question uh, that, that I had written down too, because um, uh, if, if, if he had established the Gold Bible Company prior to writing the Book of Mormon, that mm -hmm. would be a smoking gun in Mormon history that, you know, you started a, you started a company to write a book before you got the plates. That just seems a little obvious, but we couldn't find anything was this company a real company? Was it an, a corporation that he filed something? Or is it just a name you were using for the group that was putting this, that you allege was putting it together? Well, as I recall, and I can stay till 11. Okay, so we got nine more minutes. Um, the, the source that I got the go, about the Gold Bible Company was the book written by the three authors, including the descendant of Oliver Cowdery, Wayne Cowdery, Arthur Vanek, and now I'm not remembering the, the third person's name, but they wrote a big thick book called Who, wrote, Who Really Wrote the Book of Mormon? Now, because it was Oliver Cowdery's descendant, he wanted to know the whole story of Mormonism like I did. And he put up, they put in a lot in there about the Cowdries and about uh, things that they had dug up. And see, that's why I was able to do what I did because I, there's so many others that have done so much research before me. You know, Dan Vogel with the early Mormon documents, that was huge and such a helpful. And Sandra Tanner with all her primary documents. So this, they had found these letters that were addressed to the Gold Bible Company in Palmyra, New York, I believe, uh, at the post office, I, I believe. Now I'd have to look, I'd have to check it out because you know it's been six years since I've been looking at this exactly. You know these, but but I got it from that source and also from the Wayne. The Wesley Walters papers that are that are in the Covenant uh, Seminary archives. Wesley Walters collected a lot of primary documents that I used as well, including arrest warrants for different people that uh, that were connected with the Smiths. And so the 
the information about it was from Wayne Cowdery's book and from the Wesley Walters papers that are, they're kind of uh, secluded now. I mean, they're not with the Mormon sources. This is a, a you know, a, a seminary that's in a Christian archives in St. Louis, Missouri. So you'd have to go there to, to, to find it. It's not going to be on Google. And, you know, it, it might be on some other archive, archive.com, or I, I haven't looked at it recently, but that's what I'm pretty sure that's where I got it. And yeah, it's kind of buried in the library. So your take is though that it was an actual company that's, that they actually well, formed a company. I don't think they ever incorporated. See, they never incorporated the Kirkland Safety Society either, even they even though they called it a corporation. Okay. But but they would see they didn't want to follow the law on hardly anything <laughs> except if it was to their advantage. So yeah, they they formed this what they called the Gold Bible Company, and then uh got letters from it and we don't know what the letters said we just okay. know that it was addressed they found it at the post office that they were addressed to the gold bible company okay and then, and then there were some other references to it in i think the uh in 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 some other journals or letters they would talk to each other i think it's in uh early mormon documents by dan vogel but i'd have to look that up yeah vogel is who you had referenced and i okay. I, I went to the reference but i didn't have the book so i couldn't look it up so um, but we couldn't find anything anywhere else on it either. So that's why. Well, uh, Mormons, the Mormon church wouldn't want to talk about that. Well, yeah, no. there's a lot. They don't want <laughs> they to talk about. <laughs> right. Well, we certainly appreciate your time uh, today and, and, and joining us. So uh, we uh, we look forward to the discussion we're about to have uh, following kind of the, the outline that you put in your book and discussing the book. And we uh, we thank you for introducing us to this uh, uh theory or this counterfeiting thing that we've saw all over uh, and and helping to answer our questions so so thank you very Anybody much for joining us i can i can answer one more question if you still have oh, one okay does anyone else have an additional question any additional questions melinda and if we have time i just the other one of the big things that i i hadn't really known about was the cave that you had mentioned the cave um, Mm -hmm. the cave um, that maybe the Book of Mormon was written in. So right. I just didn't know if maybe counterfeiting could have been going on as well in, in the cave. Well, several witnesses that lived in Palmyra said that they wrote the Book of Mormon in the cave. Of course, they didn't want anyone to know that. They said they wrote it in, in uh, Susquehanna County in, you know, at Isaac Hale's. I think was it Isaac Hales? Anyway, where he yeah, they yeah, yeah it was Isaac Hales, right? Yeah, that, on his said. farm, yeah. But the that's why you you really don't know for sure, but they did they did have a cave in Palmyra well that where they hung out and they uh, people said that they had a lock on it and that they put stolen goods in there. And the sheriff came sometimes, but he, you know, that it was it had a locked door on it. But so, well, we know that they had a cave because there's pictures of it, and Dan Vogel went and looked at it. 
So there was a cave and, and so, I mean, they, they did everything so secretly, secretly. So how do you know where they actual wrote the Book of Mormon? Um, you don't, you don't know for sure, but a lot of people said that they did, but I just want to say, uh, I really commend you for studying, you know, that's one of the best ways to know what really happened in the past and not just what somebody says that, you know, what the book says, you read it yourself <laughs> and develop your critical thinking and use the rules of logic, you know, contradictions are not good for mental health. You need to resolve your cognitive dissonance and, and use tests of, of how to evaluate truth claims because, you know, that now that you got a new life, you got to know how to, how to decide what's true and how to just, how to know what's trustworthy. So that's my, <laughs> All right. well, uh, I could give a whole talk on that. But, but <laughs> thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed this and I wish the best to all of you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kathleen. And we'll make sure that you get a copy of the link in case you want to share this because it was a wonderful presentation. We appreciate all your insights and, and all your advice and just being able to talk to you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So I'll be able to listen to the discussion afterwards too, right? On video? Oh, yep, oh, yep, absolutely. We'll yep. send the whole thing to you, so. Excellent. Okay, well, I will talk to you again. Thank you. Thank, right, you, thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, good. To, it's always good to hear from the author and see what they have to say. So I want to go over some of the uh, items that, uh, that she uh, brought up in the book. And for those that that got that read the entire book. Uh, there were there were a lot of areas in the book that were um, that were kind of outside of counterfeiting. She tied it in like the Masons and and some of the other things that she put into the book. Um, I wanted to try to focus uh, just on more on the uh, the counterfeiting claims and and how that uh, impacted the church and where that came from, uh, but. Uh, one of the things that I felt that she did really well in the book was she she set up the the religious setting and the economic setting of the time of Joseph Smith, which I felt was very helpful in understanding uh, the argument that you know that they were involved in counterfeiting. Um, and I wanted to I wanted to kind of go over that to start with so that we can understand. It. And I'm hoping that this builds on the book that we're going to read in October, which is um, the Mormonism and the Magical Worldview. I have not read that book. Um, so I don't know what exactly is in it, but I, I've got to imagine some of these same ideas or some of these things come out of that book, and, and I think there'll be a good tie-in in the future. So uh, one of the things she started out with, and I appreciate uh, Luann pointing this out uh, to me as well, was um, that she, she pointed to the religious setting of the time and basically how uh, in the Americas there was basically two groups that 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 led to all the different re religious groups or that were kind of the founding of the two uh, of, of all the religions that followed. And that was the Puritans and the Pilgrims. And traditionally, I guess, uh, Mormonism's kind of been tied to the Puritans more, uh, but uh, she goes in and, try and ties it to the Pilgrims uh, through their genealogy, uh, which is interesting. And, and uh, I thought that she made some good points um, as to whether, you know, the Puritans or the Pilgrims, I, I think, that there is some good points to be made. Uh, she pointed out that the Puritans, as we all know, they started Massachusetts, Massachusetts Bay Colony. Um, they came from England. They were Anglicans. They 
came to, to settle the new world, but they wanted to keep their ties with the church in England. Um, and as such, they, they believed in the Bible, they believed in biblical law, they believed in following the law. And so it was, a, it was kind of a strict society based on biblical law. And they brought their ministers with them and their ministers were well-educated and their ministers had to, had to be able to speak Hebrew and Greek um, in order to, be, to become a minister. And so because of that, with their ministers, they were able to, to, to stay very true to the doctrine, very true to the church, to the Anglican church. Um, the pilgrims, on the other hand, they, they, uh, they landed in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and they were separatists. In other words, they wanted to break away from the Church of England. They no longer agreed with the Church of England and its teachings. They wanted to start their own religion or, or at least break off from it and start their own church or their own way of, of doing things. And with this comes the principle of uh, antinomianism, uh, I'm sorry, antinomianism, which means against law, personal or personal revelation. So these guys didn't believe so much in following the, the word of the Bible as they did in receiving personal, personal revelation for the Bible. Um, and they did not bring ordained ministers with them. So because they didn't bring ordained ministers with them, uh, it was kind of a free-for-all. You could start, you know, anyone could have a personal revelation. Anyone could interpret the Bible however they wanted to. Can you go to the next slide, Melinda? And, and as a result, uh, what we got was we got this uh, um, new world growth of, of this uh, um, antinomianism, which allowed for growth of the occult and witchcraft. Um, we saw that initially with the Salem witch trials. You know, we, saw, we see that starting early in the Americas. Um, and, and then we start to see the growth of these revelatory churches and uh, Hermeticism, which is, uh, started to grow, which was based on a pagan god, um, this Hermes uh, Trismegistus. I don't know how you say his name, but anyway, um, that started the witchcraft, the sorcery, the alchemy, the magic cures, treasure hunting, and fortune telling. And so when we, when we hear about Joseph Smith and this magic worldview and how they had these backcountry woodsy folk magic, you know, there is some truth to that when they say, oh, that was kind of common in the time uh, because it was, and that had grown out of this, this, uh, uh, this uh, hermeticism, which came from uh, uh, the pilgrim tradition of, of kind of anyone could, could kind of come up with their own thoughts and beliefs. From that, we got the introduction of these radical sects, the universal friends, which had prophets, prophetesses, the immoralists that believed in spiritual wivery. Uh, but then we got to some of the more, the, the ones that became more mainstream, which is deism and Freemasonry. And deism, uh, a lot of the founding fathers were deists. Um, they believed in a creator, but they didn't necessarily believe in all the son of God and all the Christian, Christian side of things. They just believed in, in one uh, God that was a creator. And then we obviously all know, we've all heard of the Masons and, and Masonry became very big. It was, it was huge at the time of Joseph Smith. Um, and in fact, she goes into a lot about the Masonry in her book uh, about the uh, Morgan affair where uh, Masonry was kind of torn apart when Morgan uh, decided to uh, uh, reveal the secrets of the Masons and he was kidnapped and, and, and never heard from again. Um, so <laughs> he was drug away and never heard from again. And amazingly, his, his wife, his widow, 
ends up becoming one of the plural wives of Joseph Smith in the future. So it's uh, it's quite a tie when you when you think about that. What's what's the uh, chances of that happening? Uh, but the Freemasonry played a big part in in the early uh, church. Uh, uh, the, the early religious setting that was around at the time of Joseph Smith. So uh, can you go to the next slide? So along with that, you have to compare that to the economic setting. And she discussed this a little bit on our, on our discussion, the Revolutionary War, um, you know, we're only, we're only what, uh, 30, 40 years from the Revolutionary War. The country's very young. It's got a weak central government and we've got, we've got high immigration and there's really no central bank. The colonies would issue their own money and uh, it, it would come from banks. So you can see here, there's a couple examples. You know, this would be the currency. This came from Jackson County. It's a Jackson County $2 bill, um, but it comes from the Jackson County Bank. And the $5 bill came from uh, uh, New Jersey and it's from a bank in New Jersey. So the government didn't necessarily produce the money. The banks would, and as she talked about with this uh, specie, they, they'd have gold or silver reserves in the bank that you could take the bank note and cash it in. And so this was a way to trade with the paper money, but you could go to the bank and get actual gold or silver coin for it. Uh, when you brought your the money in, you could claim it for the gold or silver that you that you wanted to get the, the currency. So that's how, that's how the banking uh, worked. So that set up for counterfeiting. This was a, a, a major problem in the in the young US because you can imagine I've got I've got right here like this is a this is from the Bank of Korea that I had from my last trip. This is 10,000 won. So you can imagine if you're a if if you're a, a, a immigrant coming into a country, it, it'd feel like me when I go to Korea, you know, they give me the money, but I've never seen it before. I don't know what it look, you know, I don't is this real or fake? How do I know? You know, I don't even know what their money's supposed to look like. And when I go and buy things with it, I never know what its value is worth or anything like that because I, I'm, I'm not familiar with it. So it, it's very much that way with these immigrants. They're coming into a banking system they don't understand, a money system that they have to learn. And so it, it's easy to fool people. Um, and counterfeiting had been used as a weapon during, this, during the Revolutionary War by the British to weaken the continental currency. Um, they they flooded the market with these continental dollars that were counterfeit to make the money basically worthless and try to try to destroy the, the uh, uh, banking system of the colonies. And because of that, people were trained in it. They knew how to do it. And it also became widespread because it was easy to duplicate. There was weak law enforcement. There wasn't really an FBI or any of these groups that were set up to trace counterfeiters. Also, with America moving out, moving west, colonizing, they needed a portable currency. They couldn't carry all this gold and silver. That's heavy. So this, this paper money became a, a way of making it portable where you could cash in and get those needed things. And then the decline of the strict religious orders. One of the things the Puritans had done is because of the religious background, people tended to, to fall in line and be very rule and law oriented. But as, as these pilgrim descendants that were more a free-for-all, they, they became less religious and they became more open to, you know, doing whatever they wanted. And, and that's what they began to do with the, with the money. So as a result, you've got these counterfeiting rings, which are very much like a, uh, a crime syndicate today uh, or, a, uh, or a drug cartel, maybe. Uh, it wasn't just one person. It required whole networks of people. First, someone had to make the plate so that you could copy it and make the money. You had to have someone who operated the press and the presses were, were 
quite expensive and, and you know, they were hard to move. So you had to find places to hide them and, and keep them. Um, but then you also had the, uh, someone had to distribute it. Once they make the money, you had to, you had to distribute it and you couldn't keep it. Uh, you couldn't just put it in a small town. You know, America's a small towns. Uh, you know, it'd be obvious where the money was coming from and everyone in town would know it's coming from here because all the counterfeits showing up right here, you know, in our town. So as a result, they'd have to spread it out. And so they'd have these networks that would take the money and they'd launder it. They'd basically buy horses or something like that. They'd buy horses, then they'd take the horses to the next town and uh, they'd, they'd sell the horses for real money. And that's how, they'd, that's how they'd launder the money. They'd come back with real money from the, from the fake money that they, that they had started with that, that really didn't mean anything. Um, and to keep this going, they had secret Olson combinations that, they, that she talked about that the group would, would buy into that, uh, so that they could recognize each other and, and that they were part of the cartel. And, and as a result of that, um, a lot of the families would, it would be a family business, kind of like the mob, you know, you're, you're a family man, I guess. Uh, uh, and so the families would intermarry and, and they'd kind of keep this uh, uh, in the family and, and make it a family business and it would grow that way. So that, that is what she set up as the, uh, as the time period. That's what Joseph Smith grew up in. This is the time period he's growing up. This is the economic, the religious situation that made this possible so that the counterfeiting could, could be in. And, and uh, I, I looked at several other sources and counterfeiting was a problem. Uh, it, it wasn't just a problem with the saints, like that they were the first ones to do this. It was a problem all over the place. Uh, and so it, it would be just like if they were a, a, another drug cartel or something that just was moving in uh, to compete. So. Any comments on, on that or that part of the book as people read it? Did anyone see anything or, or read anything there that uh, piqued their interest? All right, well, no question. We'll go, oh, go ahead, Nancy. So I don't have a question, Brandon. I think you are doing a great job giving um, a synopsis of this because I didn't read the book, but it occurs to me as you're talking, I'm like, what was going on and this creation of what has become this global church um, is to, a way to get money without working hard? Is, is this kind of the, the sense that we have? That's the, the motivation here? That, that's exactly what she said. As she pointed out in the book, that the Smiths kept having these farm failures. And, and the thing was, they were never working on the farm. They were always out doing these gold digging uh, things. And, and that's why their farms kept folding because they weren't growing anything. They were off all summer doing treasure digging rather than working their farms. And that's why they failed. And that's the point that she made. And, and one thing I should clarify, and I think someone brought this up uh, during the discussion, I think Bruce did. Um, that the early and we'll talk about we'll talk about Joseph Smith Sr. and stuff, but the earliest counterfeiting that ties to the to the Mormon side of things, they weren't they weren't making the money, they weren't uh, producing the money and making the coin. They were more in the distribution side. They would take the money out and spread it out. Uh, they weren't actually making the money. So, I mean, it's it's just mind boggling to me of all the the years like I have ancestors going back six generations, you know, to the founding of the church and all the years and all the dedication 
that my family has put into um, the what was called the kingdom, right? Building yep. the kingdom of God and just such a, a it's just it's just blowing my mind really the more yeah, I think it, about it. It is. And and I thought as I read the book, there was the, the counterfeiting isn't overt. Um, you know, there's always there's always these little references in the background, but there's no real smoking guns that yes, they absolutely were doing this. But we're, we're going to go through some of the evidence that makes it very difficult for the church's truth claims of the story the way they tell it, be, because there's some problems and we'll go into those a little bit later. Um, Melinda? Yeah, I just wanted to point out, um, she mentioned that the a printing press could cost about $2,000 back then. So today's dollars, that's $50,000, which I know to the church is like pennies, but like to me, that's a lot of money. And I would think to the early church, it was also a great deal of money. So that's impressive that they could collect that kind of cash to to buy a, so some sort of printing press that they could do the money if indeed they were doing it. Um, you know, I'm with you. I, I think uh, it, this was a, a cultural thing that was going on, but it's hard to, you know, prove or whatnot. So anyway, I just thought that was interesting. $50,000 today. Yeah, I'm just sitting here going like, okay, the original stuff, the treasure digging, the, you know, all this stuff was seemed to be a, a confidence job on people. And it just makes me think that the whole church and everything I was raised in is just a long con. You know, if you do what we say, you give us your money, we will give you heaven. We will let you be with your families and the eternities and stuff. It's just, you know, instead of, oh, the treasure, you know, slipped away well the treasure slips away because if you're not healed through a priesthood blessing oh you weren't righteous enough the treasure is slipping away again and you know with secret oaths and i mean you know having gone through the temple and all the freaky stuff that went on there yeah it's just it seems to me the whole thing is a long con now i'm also not sure that um i don't think that that all religion is a long con. I, I'm kind of leaning towards that. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And and I think it's it, it's it's telling as you as as I read the book, I started to see things like uh, um, that that the way that they would do things, um, things just started to kind of fall in place where you started to understand a little bit better, like the secret oaths and combinations. That was a big thing in masonry, which was big at Joseph Smith's time. And it was a big thing in these counterfeiting rings that were big at his time. And then it sort of just happens to show up in the Book of Mormon all about these secret oaths and combinations. It, it's very much a product of the, the, the environment that Joseph Smith grew yeah, up in. And, and, and the church's temple ceremony is the Mason's temple yes, ceremony. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he I took mean, it from there. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's all one so, long so You can definitely see the ties. So Joe. I was just going to say when we were talking about, you know, where did they get the money, how they do this. When Joseph Smith came to Kirtland, he basically inherited a congregation. Yes. So like there was this, like he was doing okay, doing his missionary stuff, but then all of a sudden he got this huge influx of people that were like, 
Sure, I guess this is the next preacher, you know, so. Anyway. Yeah, and, and we'll talk about that here when we get to the Kirtland uh, counterfeiting. So, let, Melinda, can you go to the next slide? So let's start out with the, the earliest, the earliest links for Mormonism to counterfeiting are right from the start. And, and that's Joseph Smith Sr., who is Joseph Smith's father. Um, we know from church history that he was a man who had a lot of failures. He, he was a drunkard. He uh, failed at all the businesses and the different things that he did. And he himself admitted that he was into treasure digging for like 30 years prior to, to the church's happening. The earliest tie for him back to any kind of counterfeiting is the wood scrape group that she brought up. And that happened in 1800, 1802. And this was a group, they called themselves the New Israelites. And although Joseph Smith Sr. is loosely connected to them, they can't directly say that he was involved. Uh, there's, some, there's some evidence that points to the fact that he was possibly involved with this. Um, we do know William Cowdery Jr., who is Oliver Cowdery's father, was, was very definitely uh, uh, involved with this. And uh, it's likely that the Hell family and Porter Rockwell's family was also involved in this incident. And, and when, you, when you understand what the new Israelites are, it, it again points very much to the church. They were described as a curious band of rodsmen and counterfeiters. So rodsmen was the divining rods, and we know that Oliver Cowdery was known as an expert with the rod. Uh, they even changed the Doctrine and Covenants. They now call it the Rod of Aaron. But, you know, there was that revelation that said, you, you know, have this power with the rod. So he was part of this treasure digging, treasure finding group as well that used a rod instead of a seer stone. But they, they all had their various methods, uh, their superpowers for how they were going to find these magic treasures. Um, it was led by a man named uh, Nathaniel Wood in Vermont, and they declared themselves modern Israelites. They practiced a strict dietary code. They displayed spiritual gifts and made prophecies, and they even began to build a temple, but it was soon abandoned. They didn't have the money to, to do it. Um, they practiced polygamy. Uh, does this sound familiar to, <laughs> to anyone? Where, where might some of these ideas have come from? Uh, Rebecca. I wasn't trying to interrupt your your list there, but I've been fascinated with wood scrape for a really long time. If you guys have not looked into us into this, this is absolutely amazing. But I was going to say, and I don't have the source for this, so take it with a grain of salt. But I did read that a lot of the members that of the wood scrape in Vermont on the U.S. Census within ten years, then most of them relocated to where the saints were. So the theory is that a lot of the early wood scrape just sort of naturally gravitated and those are the original and early members of the church based yeah. on their migration in the census. So that is fascinating right she, there. She points that out in the book. The, these very families, the, the Smiths, the Calgary's, the Hell family and the Porter Rockwell family were all in that Vermont area, in, in that Vermont town. Smith was, they, they're having a hard time saying that Smith was definitely there, but the others were there. And then they all end up in, in Palmyra, New York a couple of years later. So they, they seem to move together uh, to, to there. And that all happened because uh, Wood, Wood said that there was a destroying angel that was gonna come destroy the earth. And he predicted, he did the, the problem that prophets do to themselves, he gave a date. And so everyone was all panicked and worried that it was gonna happen. And the state had to call the militia out and, and disperse the crowd. And there was kind of some riots and stuff that went on with it. And that's why it's called the wood scrape. Um, 
because of the militia having to, to fight with them. But uh, after that, you know, obviously destroying Angel didn't appear and the group tended to, to fall apart and they, they all moved away. But one of the things that they were known for is they har harbored a reputed counterfeiter. His name's Justice Winchell. I don't think he's related to the donut guy, but uh, he also later shows up in Palmyra with these other families. And he was a known counterfeiter there. You know, he, he'd been charged with it several times and, and whatnot. So um, the other thing that ties Joseph Smith to it is that he was involved in two trials for counterfeiting in which he was in which he was uh, charged with counterfeiting. Um, it was very difficult back then to prove counterfeiting because just because you had some money, counterfeit money, it was pretty common, the counterfeiting. So if you had some money that was counterfeit, it could have been that you were just duped. So it was very hard to prove that you were a counterfeiter. So the fact that they brought charges against him indicates that they had at least enough evidence against him to bring him to trial, that he must have had a been caught with a large amount of it or something else had to have occurred. Uh, the, the records got burned up uh, in a fire, a courthouse fire, and so we don't have a lot of history behind what happened. Uh, but one of the judges in the tri trial later wrote this. He said, Joseph Smith Sr. was at times engaged in hunting for Captain Kidd's buried treasure, and he also became Im implicated with one Jack Downing in counterfeiting money but turned state's evidence and escaped the penalty. So it appears that what happened is this Benaya Wood, it, you can see the two were both against Benaya Wood. He ended up going to jail and went to prison for like two years and, and was punished for the counterfeiting. It, it, it appears that Joseph Smith Sr. may have turned a wit, as a witness against him and told what happened. And that's why Benaya Wood got, Woodward got convicted and, and, and Joseph Smith Sr. did not. But regardless, he was definitely involved in a trial related to counterfeiting, um, even though he wasn't specifically um, uh, charged as a, or he wasn't specifically ever convicted of counterfeiting. Uh, so that that's kind of the background when you when you start hearing about this. So let's go to the timeline then of how this ties in with the with the church. Um, and and this is to me this is very telling. 1818 to 1820 is probably the time period that Joseph begins treasure digging. He was probably involved from a very early age because his dad was involved with it. But that's kind of the first time we've got any kind of indication that he was, you know, different people said that he was treasure digging. 1820 he receives the first vision, although nobody has ever heard of it prior to 1832. Um, in 1822, Joseph finds the seer stone, the one he uses to do his treasure finding, you know, the one in the hat that he looks for his treasure, and the one that uh, eventually is used to, to translate the Book of Mormon in, in, uh, th that we know about. So it's interesting, he'd already supposedly had the first vision, seeing God the Father two years prior to finding this magic stone that he starts peeping into. And in 1823, Moroni starts visiting Joseph. And one of the things as a treasure digger with this peepstone is he would look into the hat and he would find buried gold and tell him where it was. And in 1823, all of a sudden, Moroni shows up and tells him where there's golden plates buried. Amazingly, right at the same time that he's starting to predict a treasure, you know, find gold treasure that he's selling to people. Um, they went and they, they took some big money. I, I mean, one of the guys they took $6,000 from uh, that he, he invested in the treasure digging, which 
you know, like Melinda said, that's 50,000 was 2000. So you're looking at, you know, they, they took several hundred thousand dollars uh, from, uh, from him. Now that had to be split among the different people digging the holes and whatever that they did and, and that. But um, as a result, he actually was brought to trial. And in 1826, he was convicted of being a disorderly person and an imposter. And uh, they, they actually have the affidavit where he signed that he was guilty. And basically they gave him a, a conviction that get out of town and we won't throw you in jail or do anything to you. You just leave town and you never come back. But this is what she was talking about where she said Joseph Smith was now known as a, as a cheat or a liar. And so that was, he, he, couldn't, he couldn't really dig in the counties around his home anymore because everybody now knew that he was kind of a, a fraud. And so in 1827, he elopes with Emma Hell. Uh, he had to elope because Isaac Hell thought he was a gold digger and a no good uh, lion cheat. And that's why he ended up having to elope with Emma. And then in 1827, he says he received the gold plates. Amazingly, right after he was convicted and could no longer practice his gold digging uh, anymore, he comes up with that he found a treasure and he's going to write this book that, that goes, uh, that tells this story. Um, in, in 1828, he lost 116 pages. And in 1830, you got the publication of the Book of Mormon and the organization of the Church of, of Christ. So uh, from 1827 to 1830, you know, the, they always say, oh, he didn't write the book. He wrote the book in like 60 days. Well, he's, you know, he originally said he got the plates in 1827, so he really had three years in which to write this book before it was ever published. Um, and so when you break out the two separate ones, you see two completely different people. You know, you see the church's story, um, first vision, uh, Moroni visits him, uh, he receives gold plates, that lose the 116 pages, he publishes the Book of Mormon, and he organizes a church. You look at it from the other side of and this is what we have documented history for. Um, he starts treasure digging. He's uh, convicted of being a disorderly person and, and swindling people out of money. He then claims that he finds a gold book buried in the hill. And then to, to cover up the fact that he can no longer work in that, he creates this religion and a book. Uh, he even tries to sell the copyright of the book soon after he writes it which makes no sense if it was a sacred manuscript, why he would try to sell the manuscript. But if you look at the other side where he's trying to make money, it all of a sudden falls into place. You start saying, well, this, this is the kind of guy he is. He's not this guy the church tells, he's, he's this other guy. And so that, that was real eye-opening to me as I read this book uh, when, when I started to see that. So any, any comments up to this point? All right. Oh, Bruce? Well, it just is such a different description of the environment and what was going on and the narrative that the church teaches and the simple narrative that I taught as a missionary, you know, a good hearted kid, you know, God appeared to him and stuff. It's quite different. The, the story and everything that was going on is quite different. And again, I feel like my family for generations now has been part of a long con that they were duped. So. And I think and it's important to 
point out that a lot of the founding members were involved with this, but I think the majority of the immigrant families that came over, they were just victims as well. They, they, they had no idea what was going on in, in a lot of cases. So Melinda, you wanna go? Oh, uh, Joe, you had a comment. Uh, I, was just, I was just thinking the past few months, like the fundamentalist groups are more like the early saints than the church we have today. So yeah, yep. it's we're if you look at their narratives, it makes a lot of sense, right? They're they're trying to stay away from the government. They're trying to run their things the way they want to do. They want you know this this whole thing. And so yeah, it's kind of hard that, and I just get frustrated with like I said earlier, why didn't they just keep with the rock and the hat story? If it started from day one and kept it that way, you know, kind of like the community of Christ tries to keep it a little bit more realistic and historically accurate and stuff. But they they keep having to come up with these new narratives, like the new book, The Saints. They just gloss over all this stuff and yep. ignore stuff. And even when you go look at the references, they're half halfway there. They don't have the real information. But even when yeah, I was looking in Wikipedia for these, like uh, you could tell the church has a hand in, in narrating the, the Wikipedia articles because it said that he was never convicted of, no one really knows what the outcome of the trial was, the 1826 trial, yet we have the signed affidavit where he said he was guilty of it. So it's interesting to see. Yeah, I just, sorry, I didn't, oh. I didn't mean to keep going, but I just saw a Wikipedia article of all the crimes that Joseph Smith has done, and it's like 10 of them. Like, I was like, why was he, why was he in Liberty Jail? Oh, he was indicted of treason. Treason, yep. And we, we, anyway, will go, we will go over that. So good point. Uh, JJ, hey, it's good to see you, JJ. It's been a while. So. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's, um, I'm noticing this pattern with a lot of religions. Um, it wasn't too long ago we read, or maybe it was a while ago we read Who Wrote the Bible. And you'd look at how the critical history is very different than the history that we've been taught. But another, but also with another religion, you look at the history of Islam. Um, everything supposedly starts with Muhammad being in a cave and an angel Gabriel appears to him, yada, yada, yada. Yet the critical history says everything started with his grandfather. Um, and those ideas pre-existed before him. And it was normal in certain areas like Medina and Petra and those areas. And they've kind of, they've had a lot more time in Christianity and Judaism has had a lot more time to clean up their history than Mormonism. And also, it's not too long ago. I mean, we're looking at a couple of hundred years. Uh, and we have a lot of documentation. It's recent history. So the critical history is a lot easier to get. Another comment I wanted to make, um, a little different. There are certain books. I remember when I was a practicing Mormon, you'd go to Deseret Book or you'd hear a conference talk. You'd always hear a same set of names. And it's a very particular history. And then one day you start reading D. Michael Quinn or Dan Vogel or Catherine Milanakis or Dialogue. You see these other names that keep popping up that the church supposedly has no idea of. People like Lumen Walters, for example, um, stuff like that. It's just, uh, that was just a weird little comment for me. It's, there's a side that there's, that's very well cataloged and very well studied that should relate to the church, but they just completely ignore it, yeah. which I thought was interesting. Thank you, Spencer. Yeah, I was just going to say that um, counterfeiting seems like one of those things where you could argue presentism, where you could say like, well, things times were just different back then. And that's kind of where I went at first. But oftentimes it's the critics that are accused of engaging in presentism. But honestly, it makes a little bit more sense if we actually think about the contextual surroundings of the church's founding. So 
I actually don't have a problem, a, a huge problem with the counterfeiting idea back in the 1800s, given how prevalent it was, given that they were starting to create new societies, new cities on the frontier, trying to create their own currency. It's not as though I don't think it was immoral or something that God would have approved of, but it makes sense to me when I think of it from the lens of history. So it's really odd to me that I think the church is the one that's engaging in presentism. They're the ones that are that are um, whitewashing the history and casting the current lens of whether counterfeiting would be right or wrong onto the 1800s. And this is where I think it gets into trouble is that, you know, I think if it would just tell the true story, um, they wouldn't get into this, these kind of issues. Um, and I think counterfeiting is the perfect example of that. It, it, I, I, I don't really find it very surprising. I think you could kind of argue that it was just um, part of their milieu, right? That it was just part of the, growing up in that area that they had these, uh, these behaviors associated with them. So that, that was just my thought that I think that it's, it's weird that I think it's the church that is actually engaging in the presentism, at least in this, and, and that I don't actually have that big of a problem with the counterfeiting argument. I appreciate that. It certainly helped open my eyes to the, the, the prevalence, you know, nowadays counterfeiting is such a, you know, extreme at heart, hardly ever happens, you, you know, but it, when you understand that it was more prevalent, you, you understand that it's more possible that, that this was going on. Bruce. Yeah, this also brings to mind the current kind of continual um, affinity fraud in Utah. Um, when I was in college at BYU, right in the early 1980s, there was a conference that BYU held, and I recall there were some students there, but it was mostly outside business people, and they were warning about affinity fraud and Ponzi schemes and stuff. And my, my roommate was contacted to be involved in one on diamonds. And it was because he was a, um, a um, let's see, we're getting feet. We're getting feet yeah, we're, um, it was a, a diamond scam. And my roommate was from South Africa. And I can remember these guys kept calling our apartment trying to get my roommate to work for them because he was like, I don't know, on the rugby team and he was from South Africa and stuff. But, you know, the same kind of thing, this affinity fraud, you you talk somebody into a good story and they mortgage their houses and stuff. This goes on in Utah constantly. So we haven't gotten very far from that whole concept and culture uh, a couple hundred years later. Hey, Rebecca. Yeah, I was just gonna go back to what Spencer had said. I agree with that. I That is a very interesting way to think about it. Uh, but I also feel it's prevalent, everyone's doing it, but shouldn't a church be better? Which is a question we ask ourselves all the time about the current church. Shouldn't they, under the direction of a prophet, shouldn't they do better? Shouldn't they know better? Shouldn't they be on the right side of history? And continually, they are not. Thank you. And I, I think to show how, how little things change, the counterfeiting in Kirtland is very interesting. Um, so the church, you know, the church didn't grow that much until... Uh, Oliver Cowdery was heading to Missouri to uh, uh, kind of on missionary work, and he heads through Ohio, and he meets Sidney Rigdon, 
and he's able to convert Sidney Rigdon in that congregation, like I think Bruce said, and he inherited this congregation, and so the church decides to move its headquarters kind of into Ohio. Um, Luann, did you have a comment? Well, uh, just the nature of the counterfeiting, if I picked it up right, I only read the summary, so I'm, I may be missing things that you all know, um, but um, they, they were a secret society. They had oaths that if you revealed who, uh, what you knew, you were, your life was in danger. And then you go to the Book of Mormon where it illustrates with the Gadiantum robbers that that's such an evil practice to have to have these oaths. And then you go to the temple and uh, <laughs> you're making the oaths and the uh, Council of the Fifty and other things that Joseph was doing, there were always these oaths. And I go, what's up? I mean, uh, it just seems like we're a little bit schizophrenic or uh, double personality where, hey, it's bad, we're doing it. It's bad, we're doing it. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And, and uh, there's a lot of things that they kept doing that with. And, and to, to understand the, the, the Kirtland Safety Society and the need for that, uh, basically at this time, Oliver Cowdery was claiming to have his own revelations and was kind of threatening uh, Joseph Smith's uh, ability to run the church. People were questioning, you know, they, some would follow Oliver Cowdery. That's the problem with personal revelation when you allow it, is everyone has a different revelation and then you're not, the guy in charge is no longer uh, in charge because everyone's having their own revelation. So Joseph had to had to pull it back in. He had to get the church back around him. Um, and so his solution was to build a temple. And, and he was going to, he had this revelation, we're going to build a temple and then the special endowment and revelations are going to come. And, and if we remember from some of the other books we read, they were all waiting for this special endowment to come that never really came. But they, they built this, they built the temple and in order to do that, the leaders had to borrow $70,000 to, to build the temple. And uh, to, so to fund the temple, the, the land was donated to them by one of the members, but they then bought up the land around the temple. And what they do? They developed it. They do what the church does best. They develop the land. And they had these immigrants coming in. And so they'd get the immigrants to come in. They were told that they were going to get land because they were poor and everything, but in the what really happened is when they got there, they'd sell them the land at exorbitant prices, which made the value of the land in Kirtland raise extremely high. And then you take all the jobs and stuff that were being created by this temple, $70,000 worth of uh, building and everything, the, the, the Kirtland economy became pretty hot and the, the, the real estate became worth, worth a lot um, because the people would... Um, uh, they'd work and then they'd buy the, they'd start paying for this land. And what ended up happening was Joseph Smith and the church actually got quite wealthy. Uh, in fact, they said they were probably worth a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars in land value, but they had no liquid assets. They couldn't they couldn't pay their debts because they had to convert that land value into into liquid assets. And the only way they could do that, they decided was let's create a bank and we'll create our own money. And then we can then we can use our value to to help fund uh, to, to to help fund our uh, our society I guess you'd say the Kirtland area so they they came up with this idea to create a bank 
And they sent off, I think it was Oliver Cowdery to go get the plates that, that, that you make to make to make the money. And that's quite expensive. So he went off to get the plates and I think it was Sidney Rigdon they sent off to the Ohio legislature and asked them for a charter to start a bank. Well, they got the plates, but they didn't get the charter. The, the, the Ohio uh, said, uh, no, uh, there's too many wildcat banks. The banks are failing. We're not gonna charter you. The church today says it was anti-Mormonism, but the reality was everyone who applied for a charter for a bank got turned down except for one bank in, in Ohio. So it, it was just that they didn't have the, the, the correct capacity to do it. So what the, what the church decided to do is they said, well, okay, if we can't start a bank, we've already got these plates, we're gonna create an anti-bank. And so we're not a bank, we're an anti-bank. And they started selling stocks for this anti-bank because they had no charter. They weren't legal, they weren't incorporated. And so they, they uh, printed bank notes that they said that they'd honor and they created this bank, but it was really an anti-bank. It looked like a bank, it acted like a bank, but it wasn't a real bank. And they sold the stock, they capitalized it at $4 million, which is an exorbitant amount for back in those times, but they only had reserves of $20,000. In other words, they passed out notes of $4 million worth of notes, but they only had $20,000 in specie to give out when people came to, to, claim, to claim those notes. Um, as a result, the bank only lasted one month. And in 1837, they had to announce that the money, they, would, they wouldn't give any money on bank notes anymore. They wouldn't honor the bank notes. And so the, the church says anti-Mormons pressure led to the collapse of the bank. And what really happened was the debtors or the creditors that they'd given all these bank notes to found out that they really didn't have the money and they made a run on the bank, which made the bank collapse. And that's the anti-Mormons were the, were the people who were cashing in the, the bank notes that, uh, that had really no value. Bruce. Yeah, I, I was just looking up here, um, you know, in some of the Mormon podcasts and stuff, they refer to um, Turley, the church historian that says that there was no, you know, they haven't seen such a great an apostasy since Kirtland. And the apostasy at Kirtland, I believe, was caused by this bank fraud and failure. And that caused everybody to leave. Well, now the internet has caused the revelation of the other fraud and failure. <laughs> and the, you know, greatest apostasy since the Kirtland time. And I and as I recall, also um, Turley was one of the family names in the early history. He was. He was in this book a lot. So yes, appreciate so, that. Yeah, it's just wild. Yeah, he he. Uh, it, it's it's interesting because uh, it, it it was fraud it, all the way around when you started looking at it because they uh, they they took it. And you can see on the banknote this three dollar banknote up above. It, they printed originally, it said bank, and I've got a copy uh, here. I don't know if you can see this, but uh, see how it just says bank and there's no anti-ing on it? This is, uh, this is some of the currency that uh, Rebecca bought. Um, but on the one on, on the page, see that anti-ing co on the $3 bill? They stamped that on there because they 
didn't get, they bought the plates and, and they didn't say anti-banking when they bought them. It just said bank. So they had to stamp that on and they only did that on the $3 bill. But you look at it, it looks like it's a bank. You don't see the little anti-banking <laughs> company in there. So it, it, when you look at it, it looks like it's from a real bank. Um, they also printed illegal notes. There was a law that you couldn't print notes of certain denominations and they printed those denominations, which also made it illegal. Um, but the biggest thing to me that was a fraud was they took the specie that they had and they kind of put it on display. They had these trays and they filled it with sand and then they just put the thing on the top. So it looked like they had a lot of money in the bank, but it was really just the coin sitting on top of the on top of these trays to make it look like they had more money than they had. And Joseph Smith, in fact, did say that he had a revelation that this bank would consume all the banks of the world until it became the greatest bank. Uh, and so he, they, there was a lot of arm twisting for members to invest in the bank and to accept the money and to use the money. And almost all of them lost everything they had. And that is what caused the, um, the, the apostasy that you said for so many people to, they said that he didn't have 20 friends in all of Kirtland after this uh, bank debacle. And so if you go to the next slide, uh, So as a result of this, Oliver Cowdery, who was like the president of the bank, headed to uh, Missouri, to the Far West uh, group uh, to escape because he was highly uh, sought after for this banking failure. Smith and Rigdon stuck around, but they were charged and arrested for fraud. Both of them were convicted and fined $1,000 for bank fraud. Uh, uh, because Cowdery escaped, Joseph had a scapegoat. He all of a sudden started to blame Oliver Cowdery for the bank failure. It wasn't Joseph that caused the bank failure. It was Oliver Cowdery that caused the bank failure. And so uh, he started, they started accusing them of, uh, of counterfeiting and, and of cheating and lying and all these other things. And eventually uh, Oliver Cowdery was excommunicated. And if we remember when they were in Missouri, they formed this Danite group. And the Danite group, uh, which was people who followed Joseph Smith, protected him, they would kill, they, they killed people. They, they were fighting back against the, uh, the mob. They may have in, instigated a lot of that, but they, they produced what was called the, the Danite Manifesto. And to me, this is the biggest problem for the church dealing with this counterfeiting um, because uh, and I'll read this to you. Um, the first presidency wrote specific description of the counterfeiting in which their former brethren engaged in Kirtland, and they intended to publish it to the world. Um, Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Lyman E. Johnson united with a gang of, this is, this is their statement. This is what they put in the Danite uh, oh, in, or manifesto. In, they, uh, they said that uh, Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Lyman E. Johnson united with a gang of counterfeiters, thieves, and liars, and blacklegs of the deepest dye to deceive, cheat, and defraud the saints out of their property by every art and stratagem which wickedness could invent. You kept up a continual correspondence with your gang of marauders in Kirkland, encouraging them to go on with their iniquity, stealing, cheating, lying, instituting vexatious lawsuits, selling bogus money, and also stones and sand for bogus. This is the covering up the, the coin, in which nefarious business Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Lyman E. Johnson were engaged while you were there. You are at this time engaged with a gang of counterfeiters, coiners, and blacklegs, as some of those characters have lately visited our city from Kirtland 
and told what they had come for. So the reason I see this is so damning is because this is the first presidency, Joseph Smith, Hiram Smith, Sidney Rigdon, claiming that two of the three witnesses, Oliver Cowdery and David Whitner, Whitmer are counterfeiters, thieves, and liars. <laughs> so, so they're they're not being accused by anti-Mormons of this. They're accusing they're being accused of it from the prophet Joseph Smith. So how does anybody who's a who's a believing Mormon at this point say, oh well, I can trust the, the witness of Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer. They're fine, outstanding uh, people. When when Joseph Smith himself said they're liars, they're thieves, and that, that they're, they're counterfeiters. So the church is in a real conundrum here because they're being accused of it. But at the, at the same time, they said, oh, we know it because these counterfeiters came to Kirtland and told us it. Well, what counterfeiters go and tell some that go to a church and tell them, hey, your guys are counterfeiting over there if they're part of the counterfeiting? These guys knew about the counterfeiting. They knew what was going on. And they were just brushing it off, saying, no, you, these guys did it. It wasn't us that did all of this. We didn't print this money that was worthless. It was, it was Oliver Cowdery who did it. And of course, Oliver Cowdery responds back, no, it was them that did it. And he accuses them of being counterfeiters. So you got two of the three witnesses saying that, that the others are counterfeiters. <laughs> so whether you believe the law or that it's anti-Mormons, here, the two Mormons are claiming each other are counterfeiters. That, to me, is a real problem, and that, to me, is the biggest thing that some sort of counterfeiting was going on here, whether it was these illegal banknotes from Kirtland or whether it was some other outside currency. There was definitely something happening that they're all blaming and, and calling each other counterfeiters. And Sidney Rigdon even went into detail over here. You can see on the right, um, he, he claimed that this Warren Parish um, that he stole the paper out of the institution from the Kirtland Safety Society and went to buying bogus or counterfeit coin with it, becoming a partner with the Tinker's Creek Blacklegs and in company with Julius Granger and buying different kinds of property with it and devoting it to his own use. He was aided by his former associates to take his paper and go and buy bogus with it from the Tinker's Creek Blacklegs. And on the way coming home, they would waylay Parrish and his gang and rob them so they would lose the bogus money. At last, Parrish sold his horse and carriage for bogus money and behold when he came home and opened his box of bogus it was sand and stones so he sure seemed to know a whole lot about the counterfeiting operation and how they did it for being an outsider who didn't know anything about it it's clear that they were inside and they were getting information and they knew what was going on in this in this so melinda you want to go to the next next one so any questions on Kirtland, Kirtland Banking Society, safety thing or any comments? Okay, let's go to Nauvoo. And this is where the counterfeiting gets a little different because in Kirtland, we know they were making their own money for a bank. Um, and you could say, well, that's counterfeiting. They were making money that wasn't really worth anything. Uh, but in Nauvoo, it's a different story. And you notice that, you know, the Saints didn't go from Kirtland to Nauvoo. They went to Missouri first. But it, it appears, and that's where they were claiming that uh, Oliver Cowdery was producing his counterfeit, but it appears that the counterfeiting never really got off the ground in Missouri because the Missourians would have, have nothing, they, they, they wouldn't take it. And the, the mobs were chasing them around. And that was probably one of the reasons the mobs were there was they were seeing this type of behavior and they were trying to put a stop to it. And they basically chased them out before they could really get a, get a foothold there. 
But the interesting thing about Nauvoo is once they got to Nauvoo, they set up their kingdom in which they, they got the charter for the Nauvoo Charter, where the city was basically a city state. And, and Joseph had all the power in the city. He was the courts, he was the, uh, he was the sheriff, he, he had all the power. And so as a result, um, they, uh, uh, they started counterfeiting. And uh, this, is, this is a book from uh, counterfeiting expert David R. Johnson in his book, Illegal Tender, Counterfeiting in the Secret Service in the 19th Century America, uh, he said this, St. Louis and Nauvoo, Illinois combined to create the second major production center in the nation for counterfeit money. That just, wow, Nauvoo, Illinois, the home of the saints, nothing goes on in Nauvoo without Joseph knowing about it. And it's the, one of the major production centers for counterfeiting in the, uh, in, in the U.S., Professor Stephen Mim included a profile in Nauvoo in his study, counterfeiters associated with the Mormon settlement at Nauvoo, Illinois, for example, attracted condemnation from their neighbors in the 1840s. The Mormons who had established an autonomous state within a state at Nauvoo probably tolerated counterfeiters in their midst and may well have had a hand in manufacturing bogus coins themselves. The attraction of high autonomous Nauvoo was understandable. Moreover, the Mormons had been accused of counterfeiting in the past, as well as other experiments that bordered on counterfeiting, including the Kirtland Bank debacle. So here you've got non-Mormon uh, historians who are, you know, making note of the fact that counterfeiting was happening in Abu, and as we all know, nothing happened in Abu without Joseph knowing about it. And then concurrent, the Warsaw Signal at the time put into their newspaper, they said there is a species of counterfeit extensively circulated in this community called Nauvoo Bogus. They're half dollars dated 1828. They are a pretty good imitation of the genuine coin, so good that some of our businessmen have been imposed upon them. It is said they are manufactured in the city of Saints. So bogus money was showing up and they attributed it back to, um, back to Nauvoo and the, and the church. And there's even a testimony of a, a, a a press being set up in the Nauvoo house and, 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 and making these. Um, can you go to the next slide, Melinda? So as a result of, of, of all of this counterfeiting, uh, I want to point out that last, the, the bottom one there, um, to kind of set the, the stage for what was happening in Nauvoo. This is what Governor Ford accused uh, the Nauvoo general of the, of the Nauvoo Legion uh, he charged him with stolen goods. He said, stolen property has been traced to your city and the owners who came to search were ordered away and fled for their lives. And there were those in Nauvoo that carry on a pretty large business in stealing. Ford said he suspected murders had been ordered by some of the Mormon leaders. He strongly threatened that if the depredations did not cease, the surrounding counties will take up the, I can't read what that says, uh, sword maybe or something. And you may be driven uh, despite the, the dead of winter. Um, so they were stealing goods, they were buying stuff with counterfeit money, and then they'd bring it to Nauvoo, and when people would come to look for it, they, the, the, the authorities there, which were all Mormon and owned by the Mormon church, would chase them out of town and not let them look for the stolen property. So it became a safe haven for them to steal goods and bring it in to, the, to Nauvoo, and, and they may have been buying it with the counterfeit money, and then that's why it was considered stolen is they'd find out they bought it with counterfeit and then they'd come to get their property and they'd get chased off. 
So all of this is happening and William Law uh, publishes the Nauvoo Expositor, the first edition. And we know Joseph Smith orders it to be uh, destroyed. And that set off the whole final last days of Joseph Smith. But once he destroyed the Expositor and the governor heard about it, he, he you know, Smith had to provide a, an explanation or a defense of why he did it to the governor. And this is what he said. He says his dissenters were unprincipled, lawless, debauchees, counterfeiters, bogus makers, gamblers, and peace disturbers. So once again, he's accusing William Law, his first counselor in the first presidency, of being a counterfeiter. <laughs> William Law, of course, says, no, Joseph Smith is the counterfeiter. And again, we get counterfeiters, you know, this, this, uh, each other calling each other counterfeiters among the first presidency. It's just, again, the church has a real problem here because it's not the, this isn't external uh, claims. This is internal claims from in, inside the church. And so after they took uh, Joseph Smith to Liberty Jail, Governor Ford came to Nauvoo and he was going to try to set the peace while uh, Smith was in the, in, in the jail. And uh, Carthage jail. In Carthage, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right. Carthage show. And so as he comes, um, they, they hear that he's coming. They hear that he's going to investigate this counterfeiting claim. And John Taylor writes in his book that he hides the type, the stereo plates, and most of the valuable things he's uh, removed from the printing office. This is the church printing office. And he disguised himself so as to not be known and crossed the river to escape to Canada when word came that Governor Ford was coming to Nauvoo to investigate. Now that raises the question, why do you hide the type and the stereotypes if it's not counterfeit in goods? I mean, if you're just printing church publications, why do you need to hide it? And why do you have to sneak off to Canada for producing church publications? There's just, there's a lot of evidence that you can't tie directly to the counterfeiters and say, this absolutely happened, but there's so much going on and it's being, rec it's, it's being said so many times that it's that it's hard to to, to dismiss it as anything that uh, uh, that that something was definitely happening here, and the fact that it was the biggest counterfeiting center and they had a even had a name Nauvoo bogus for fake money uh, tells you that they were very much uh, involved with this. Um, Melinda, can you go to the next slide? So here's the biggest uh, thing that that most members don't don't uh, know. Um, at the time, just after, after uh, the uh, martyrdom of Joseph Smith, um, William Smith, who is Joseph Smith's brother, he was an apostle and the patriarch of the church at the time, uh, publishes that Brigham Young and the Twelve were thieves, murderers, and counterfeiters. This starts an investigation from the federal authorities, and uh, the law enforcement came and attempted to arrest Brigham Young and John Taylor for counterfeiting, but they couldn't get into Nauvoo because the Nauvoo Legion is a third the size of the entire United States Army at the time. So they just didn't have enough forces to go in and arrest them. And so they ended up uh, going to a grand jury and giving them the evidence. And the grand jury indicts Brigham Young and many of the Quorum of the Twelve on counterfeiting charges. And so in order to arrest them, they plead for help from the federal government to send federal troops to go and arrest Brigham Young. And Samuel Brannan uh, is in Washington and sends word that this is going to happen. 
So Brigham Young learns that this is going to happen. And so he's got to get out of the country before these federal troops come and arrest him. And so this picture that you see here where they, the Saints leave Nauvoo in the dead of winter, and we all hear they cross the frozen Mississippi River, and the children that died on the other side through the harsh winter and everything. The reason they left in the middle of the winter was because of counterfeiting, that Brigham Young was, a, was indicted for counterfeiting, and federal troops were coming to arrest him. And that's why they left in the dead of winter and left Nauvoo behind. Uh, and, and you never hear that story in the church as to, to why they left in the dead of winter. Um, so I, I thought that was I thought that was one of the saddest stories to think of the children that died and the people that died and suffered because of their counterfeiting um, that, that was going on. Um, you want to go to the next slide? Uh, Utah, when they got to Utah, I'm over time. I'm going to try to wrap this up real fast then. When they got to Utah, um, after they fled from Nauvoo, the first thing that Young did was uh, he set up a mint. And the question is, where did they get the things to produce a mint and make a mint. They, they took it with them. They had it from Nauvoo. Um, but the, the, the uh, people were coming back from the California gold rush and they were bringing back the gold to Salt Lake. And so they started minting these coins. They were gold coins. But uh, soon people found uh, that the, the assay office tested the coins and they were, uh, they were, uh, Eight, only 80%, they only had 80% of the gold in them that they were supposed to have. So in other words, they were putting less gold in them and making them worth a value, which is a, basically counterfeiting. They made it worth 20% more than it was, was worth. Um, also, there's record that to finance the Utah war, Brigham Young planned to put half a million dollars in forged checks into circulation. When it was discovered and officials at Camp Floyd attempted to arrest him, um, but as we learned from Mountain Meadows, Brigham Young had complete political control of the system and, and they were never able to get any kind of conviction. Uh, there was a man, a Mormon named Myron Brewer who turned state's evidence against Brigham Young. Uh, and during a preliminary hearing, he was shot dead in the middle of the night uh, in Utah. So just, uh, you know, just kind of shows you that there was, there was definitely this uh, underground uh, mob almost influence that was happening. Uh, the last thing that was said, uh, Will Bagley put it this way, and this, this is to me the best conclusion that we, can, uh, that, that we have. He says, the persistence of such charges of counterfeiting in Illinois, Iowa, New York, California, and ultimately in Utah territory suggests that counterfeiting like polygamy was a publicly condemned but secretly sanctioned activity in early Mormon society. So he, he's saying, even though we can't prove it, it it's kind of like polygamy. It, it's pretty clear something was happening <laughs> and we just can't approve it. So Melinda, can you go to the last slide and then I'll, I'll take your question, Bruce. Uh, so we put together this 10 most wanted slide and uh, th this is kind of telling right here when you look at it. These are the crimes that these men that I used to think of as prophets and seers and revelators and great men. These are the crimes that they uh, had all been, some of them were convicted. These are the ones they at least had been uh, charged with. Uh, I put some of these in were charges that were made by each other, you know, that, that Oliver Cowdery was cl claimed to be a counterfeiter by, by Joseph Smith. But um, Joseph Smith was uh, uh, brought up in charges for treason, 
bigamy, fraud, treasure digging, inciting a riot, damaging property, attempted murder, extortion, and illegal banking. Uh, you never hear about that in the church narrative. Brigham Young had been uh, indicted on counterfeiting. Uh, charges were, they tried to bring charges for murder on him with the Mount Meadow Massacre, uh, but they were never able to, to make those stick. And then obviously uh, he, he was guilty. We know he was guilty of bigamy, although he was never prosecuted for it. John Taylor was indicted twice for counterfeiting and also for bigamy. Uh, Parley P. Pratt, twice for counterfeiting, he was indicted. He actually served time in prison for something that we don't know what. He said he was in prison for a minor incident, but he never described what it was. He also was brought up on charges of treason, murder, and big, bigamy. The murder charges for both him and, uh, and Smith were from the, the wars in, uh, in uh, Missouri, the Missouri wars. Um, Orson Hyde, twice for counterfeiting and receiving stolen goods. Um, Porter Rockwell, uh, he, he was suspected of murdering over 100 people. <laughs> uh, he wasn't charged in those. Again, he was in Utah where they, he couldn't be charged, but he was also uh, uh, indicted for attempted murder in, uh, in Independence. They tried to bring him back. And then he also was uh, indicted in counterfeiting. William Smith, this is the prophet's brother um, and the patriarch and the apostle, he was indicted for counterfeiting. And although these aren't uh, charges specifically, uh, they, they mentioned that he was known for drinking, fighting, horse and cattle stealing, and ruining virtuous females by the wholesale. This was the description of, of the patriarch of the church and an apostle. <laughs> Um, Heber C. Kimball uh, was indicted for counterfeiting, and we know he was also guilty of bigamy. Um, Oliver Cowdery, counterfeiting, stealing, cheating, lying, in, in, instituting vexatious, nefarious business. Those were all uh, charges from Joseph Smith. I don't think he had any legal charges. He was for the uh, illegal banking, though. Uh, he escaped before he got charged for the illegal banking. And then Sidney Rigdon uh, was actually convicted on the illegal banking uh, charge. So I thought this really was a good visual that just showed, you know, that these men aren't the men that we that we thought they were when you look at the when you look at the history behind it. So that concludes it. But Bruce, uh, you you had a yeah. I just had one comment when on the previous slide when you talked about the church condemning certain things but then doing them. It just came to mind. The church condemns child abuse, and right now it's in the middle of a bunch of brouhaha with, you know, it's coming out that they actually help support it by covering up things to keep the good name of the church from being unblemished. So, you know, there's a long history of this crap. Yes, there is. And, and you see where it, where it came from when you start studying this. So I, I felt as I read the book, I, I thought most of the counterfeiting charges were, uh, she had a lot of stuff in the book and I felt like a lot of them were, uh, I, I don't know, coincidental, maybe not. Circumstantial. Think, circumstantial, yes. They were circumstantial. There was no hard proof. I didn't see the hard proof. So I tried to pull out the things that I thought were the, the most damning things. And, and like I said, even though they weren't convicted, the fact that they were accusing each other of it all the time, uh, they, they, they were either liars or they were counterfeiters or maybe both. <laughs> so uh, that that's the presentation. So. Uh, hopefully 
everyone got something out of that. So. Oh, that was amazing. Oh my goodness. Excellent. Thank you so much, Landon. That was absolutely incredible. And I actually feel um, where there's smoke, there's fire. I think that's kind of the theme for me in this entire book. But thank you so much for such a detailed and well-prepared uh, wild ride into the dark and twisted rabbit hole of Mormon counterfeiting. And I have to say, I find it no surprise the counterfeit religion has at its origins counterfeiting. So this is amazing. Absolutely incredible. Um, if you're not a member of the book club and would like to be, here is how you can contact us. You can send me an email at, at thegoodbookclub@mail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram. I'm making an attempt at TikTok. If you know any Zoomers, send them to me to help because I'm not very good at it. Anyway, just find us. We'd love to, to get our information out to you and have you be a part of us. Um, if you do use our email, for some reason, my emails back to you sometimes go to spam. So check your junk. Uh, mail and mark that it's okay that I communicate with you. So that ends our official book club and the recording portion. However, we always stay on for a little bit afterwards. We call it our mix and mingle, meet and greet, and we just kind of hang out and talk. So if you would like to remain on for that, please.